0: I'm really pleased now to present uh, our moderator tonight, Ms. Fernanda Santos. Ms. Santos covers Arizona and New Mexico as the Phoenix bureau chief for the New York Times. Previously, she was based in New York. Since coming to the U.S. from Brazil in, 19, in 1998, she also has worked for the Republican and the Eagle Tribune newspapers in Massachusetts, the Daily News of New York, and People Magazine. Please give a warm welcome to Ms. Fernanda Santos.
1: Thank you.
2: Thank you. Good evening. It's it's great to be here. Uh, Thanks for Zocalo for inviting me to moderate tonight's panel. We have three very interesting people who know a lot about um, what's going on in the real estate market, how to rebuild neighborhoods. And um, the first one is um, Bill Emmons. Bill is an assistant vice president and economist at the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis, where he has worked since 1995. He conducts policy analysis and he speaks frequently on topics including the economy, housing and mortgage markets, banking, financial markets, financial regulation, and household financial conditions. He also serves as an adjunct professor of finance in the John M. Olin Business School at Washington University in St. Louis. I was telling him that foreigners always mix things up, so I wanted to make sure that I pronounced the school's name correctly. Thank you. <laughs> um, Then we have Deidre Pfeiffer, Pfeiffer? Um, is an assistant professor in the School of Geographical Sciences and Urban Planning at Arizona State University. Her scholarship focuses on housing strategies to meet the needs of our aging and diversifying society, the outcomes of the foreclosure crisis, and the relationship between urban growth and racial equity, which is a really interesting uh, area of expertise. Then we have um, Graham Williams. He's the CEO of Mortgage Resolution Partners, a community advisory firm working to stabilize uh, local housing markets and economies by keeping as many homeowners with underwater mortgages in their homes as possible. Previously, he was Senior Vice President and Director of Residential Lending at Bank of America. That was before everything happened, (laughs) I asked him. CEO of a federal savings bank at AT ITT Financial Services and Senior Vice President of Risk Management at GE Capital. Um, so, um, welcome to all of you thank and uh, thank you for being here. So, um, I'm a storyteller, so I'm going to start with a little anecdote that I was sharing with them outside. So, I moved here from New York in, um, in April and I came by myself to look at some houses, um, you know, a place mm-hmm. for, my, for me, my husband, and our daughter to live and uh i told the broker uh, that i wanted a neighborhood that was heavily owner occupied even though we rent i did not want to live in a transient place uh it's important stability is important for neighborhoods uh in my opinion and uh and i also uh looked at the uh, maps that are available online property shark trulia they have them of bank-owned homes and foreclosed homes. And I told him, I do not want to live in any of these areas. I do not want to live in a place that has a lot of homes that are empty, that are owned by banks, that investors are buying off and renting them because I, I want a place that uh, my, where my neighbors have a, I feel like they have a stake in the neighborhood. They care. They want to meet me, too, because they want to know who I am. Um, and so uh, I live in central Phoenix. I, I love it here, and it's, it's exactly the neighborhood I was looking for. And um, one of the things, I mean, the big topic here is how to rebuild neighborhoods, uh, you know, in the midst uh, of this foreclosure crisis. And Graham's uh, Bank does work with that. I mean, keeping people in their homes, people who have underwater mortgages in their homes. So how, how do we start to do that?
1: Well, I, I think the, the, the key thing—the uh, title of this this event—is uh, dealing uh, with neighborhoods after the foreclosure crisis. I, I think we're a little premature, frankly, to make that judgment. Um, there have been four and a quarter million foreclosures in the United States thus far since the housing bubble burst in two thousand eight, early two thousand eight, late two thousand seven. Um, the uh, the numbers look to us like there'll be another six million more or less. There are three and a half million under, excuse me, there are three and a half million delinquent mortgages today. So I think the first thing we ought to think about uh, in terms of rebuilding neighborhoods is preventing foreclosures, more foreclosures, preventing as many foreclosures as we can. You touch on a very interesting point, and and I I think most people don't don't really recognize this. Um, And I'm going to give you some numbers from California, I hope you forgive me. Uh, I like Phoenix, but I haven't had a chance to study these. My son lives here, as a matter of fact. Uh, But I haven't had enough time to study the numbers here. In San Bernardino County in March of 2006, uh, 7.3% of the homes were sold to uh, non-owner occupants, people that wanted to own the house and, and rent the house out. And generally, those were people that lived down the street, lived in San Bernardino County. In March of 2012, which is the latest numbers I have, 37.5% 37.5% of the homes in San Bernardino County were sold to, renter, to people that wanted to rent those houses out. Um, and those were no, no longer uh, the guy down the street. These were guys that owned funds. And uh, so what you saw was guys putting together billions and billions, literally billions of dollars of, of money in pools to buy homes here in Phoenix and in Las Vegas and in San Bernardino, and Salinas, and Stockton, and Modesto, and Merced, all over the West, uh, as well as Florida and parts of the uh, New Jersey. So the effect of that is exactly as you described, which is that you now have transient single-family neighborhoods where the homes turn over, the cost of policing is higher, the cost of fire is higher. Um, so. And, and, and you here in Phoenix are very familiar with with, with these issues, um, so I, I think the the focus of the of the, the local government, the local government should care very much about this problem. Um, the federal government and, of course, state government, the government should should I think be very focused on preventing the next foreclosure, um, as well as dealing with repairing neighborhoods that are already in the midst of this problem. Could I pick up on that yes. point? The, you, know, you, you were talking about,
3: Fernanda, about these neighborhoods that look unstable. And I guess I would make the point that I think it wasn't the foreclosures per se that destabilized these neighborhoods, it was the housing bubble. And going back to the point about how are we going to prevent something like this happening again, we have to look back in time and say it was a crazy, crazy time and what we're now seeing are the, the results of that. Of course, that doesn't help uh, a neighborhood or a community that's, that is unstable right now, but part of the, uh, you know, what's going on is, is a move back toward reality. And I think one of the aspects that, uh, you know, looking forward for ourselves, for our children, uh, we, have to, we have to approach the whole thing uh, on a more stable foundation. Mm-hmm. Uh, household's balance sheets need to be stronger. than than they were going into this.
4: Yeah. I mean, I I would like to just add on to something, too, with what Graham's talking about. So how do we, you know, deal with this more short-term problem of, vacant foreclosures and who should we be encouraging to, you know, what should we be encouraging to happen to these foreclosures? And the investor issue is really interesting. This is something that I've been doing a lot of research on recently. And, um, you know, so there's a lot of, there's a big question of whether investors, you know, these people who are buying up foreclosures without the intention of, of living in them, you know, are, are they good for neighborhoods or bad for neighborhoods? On the one hand, you know, uh, a lot of these investors are cash rich. They're people who are able to afford to, um, you know, buy homes that, you know, they don't have to sell a property to buy the home. Um, you know, they may be able to buy homes that would otherwise remain vacant. Um, so there's a question of to what extent are they serving to reduce vacancies? Um, you know, and that could have a very positive effect on neighborhoods. But of course, like Graham's bringing up, it depends on what they do with the foreclosures. You know, are they just holding on to them as vacant assets, selling them off when prices increase, or are they renting them out? And, and depending on who they rent them out to, they could also be having a positive or negative effect. Um, on, on the one hand, a lot of these investors are renting to people who have undergone foreclosure and who may be looking for a place to live. So they may be playing a valuable role in the housing market right now by helping these families become more stable. The interesting, one, one thing that's interesting to me is because I, I tend to look at things,
2: uh, I, I try to see, you know, the light at the end of the tunnel. And, uh, and when I look at the number of houses out there that are, you know, vacant or, you know, people are having a very hard time holding on to, um, I wonder where is the opportunity? Is there an opportunity in, in this moment in time that we are right now? And, uh, Bill, why don't you start? Because you can talk to us from a, sort of a broader macro perspective, and then we're going to kind of go down the line here.
3: Well, maybe first, uh, you know, certainly there are people who benefit from lower house prices, young people who are going to be home, first-time home buyers mm-hmm. or someone who's, uh, say, moving up to a more expensive part of the market. Lower prices are, of course, a benefit mm-hmm. to them, counterbalanced by the people who took those losses. Uh, so it's, it's not, you know, it's not that everybody uh, wants high prices or low prices. Now, from the standpoint of the economy overall, kind of going back to what I said before, what we really want is house prices that rise kind of along with with incomes. That that's a sustainable pace of growth, and that's that's what we forgot in the in the boom, in the bubble. And so, if uh, you know, the, the good news, is that, like you, Fernanda, I want to look for the, the positive. If we can learn from this experience and say it's crazy when we see prices doubling in a couple of years and, uh, you know, have, have more moderate price increases, that would be the basis for, for uh, solid homeownership going forward. The bad news is that there's some evidence that areas of the country that have had big booms and busts before tend to repeat it.
2: Phoenix is one example,
4: yeah. right?
3: <laughs> California, too. So, for example, uh, a contrast, uh, California versus Florida. Uh, California had had a, cy- a number of cycles of big booms and then busts. And Florida had been much more moderate for a number of years. Florida then, and Phoenix, Las Vegas, other areas, got caught up in this crazy boom in the, uh, in the last decade or so. And so, you know, we can keep our fingers crossed that this pattern doesn't hold those, uh, you know, that it's kind of a, almost a, a social memory that people uh, get used to it and then uh, create it again. Because it just seems, I think today, most people would agree, it's just a destructive cycle.
2: Yet, a lot of people, when they go out looking for homes, still have in their minds that a home is a great investment. It's a great way to make money. We can buy a house and sell it in two or three years and make a lot of money on it, especially because of what just happened recently. So how much of that plays a role? I mean, it it almost seems to me that in addition to changes in the economy, we need a a change of mindset among people in the way they look at their own finances, and the way they look at the value of home ownership.
1: Well. Let's talk about housing as an investment for a moment. If you put 20% down on a house and it goes up 4% a year, which it did from the end of World War II until 2006, that's a 20% annual return on your investment. That's a great investment. The question is, of course, how how much volatility is there in the market? And is that that stable over long periods of time? And you should never have too much of your equity in in the housing market. Uh, I'll tell you who thinks it's a really great investment now. And I'm I'm going to come back to this point again because I think it's important to understand what's really going on in the housing market. There were many, many loans, home loans, made in in the United States in 2006, 2007 that went into things called private label securities. Um, There are roughly 4 million of those private label securities still around today. And lenders, like Countrywide, came into Phoenix, made loans, sold off the loans, and sold off all the risk. They didn't retain any, any, of, any of the downside on this. And they made loans to anybody who could sign a piece of paper. Homeowners who didn't understand that they couldn't afford loans were granted mortgages. I was a consumer banker for 20 years. I will tell you that if you take a first-time home buyer and say, you can afford this house, they'll sign the documents and they'll take, they'll take the house because they believe they can afford it. Now, what happened next? They, there was continued lending into this market. The housing bubble Occurred. It was it was driven by money, and then the housing market collapsed. Now the housing market collapsed. What's this? What's the these same guys? What's their solution? Well, let's you know, let's go through the foreclosure process. Let's just throw everybody out of their houses, right? I mean, that's that's what's gone on. They loaned into this, created a housing bubble, and now home, home values have gone down. And this was an extraordinary event. Never before, ever had home prices gone down in the United States across the board. They'd gone down in Houston, they'd gone down in L.A., they'd gone down in different markets at different times, Florida. Volatility in single markets. This was extraordinary. Home prices collapsed nationally. So there are 52 million mortgages in the United States, for my, for my most recent count. The objective of the guys who are doing, who, who, loaned, you, who loaned you that money and are now, they'd like to buy 4 million houses. That number's published, right? 4 million houses, one of the biggest bond managers in the world, would like to buy 4 million houses. It's not because they think investing in houses in Phoenix is a bad idea. These are not guys who buy at the top of markets. These are guys who buy at the bottom of markets. If you want to help start things to get better here in Phoenix and everywhere else that has been affected and will continue to be affected, The dialogue can't be, oh, my goodness, the only way out is foreclosures. The dialogue has got to be, at least in part, about how do you prevent foreclosures. And I'd like to encourage everyone in the audience to think about whether or not it's absolutely necessary to have somebody whose home value collapsed, whether it's necessary to throw them out of the house and put them in a rental, and then have somebody else come and rent their house. Maybe, Maybe there's a way to keep everybody in their own house and that's that 's what I think people in general need to think a lot more about, so that 's the ide- ideologue in me coming out That's that 's the end of, end of that so
2: and I wanted to bring Deirdre into the conversation yeah. because of the specific um, uh, one of the topics that you um, that you research uh, the issue of racial equity uh, in housing, and um, again in in the looking on the sunny side of life uh, attitude. Uh, you know, one can look at these vacant homes and, and these uh, houses that are bank owned these days and see opportunity for mixing of neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Uh, I find, you know, having lived in New York City 10 years and, and having owned a uh, a home there, um, an apartment, um, that housing is, is one way that uh, very easily can segregate people because Home prices determine, obviously, who can buy, you know, what families can buy those homes. And more commonly, you would have Caucasian families have more money. You know, poor people in this country, as in most of the world, are people of color. So um, how do you take that, or what is in your area of study that you have uh, come across that can, uh, maybe there are cities that are already doing that or groups that are thinking about it, how to take this and seize this opportunity to... Um, uh, diversified neighborhoods or cities entire cities
4: well yeah and I'll, I'll speak to two kind of opportunities that exist for this uh, in the foreclosure crisis first though it's important to understand you know what determines your ability to be a homeowner a, a big part you know is the wealth that you have you know your ability to make this down payment um, they're tremendous um, Gaps across race and ethnicity in terms of wealth in our country, uh, the latest numbers I saw, which were from the Pew Center, um, you know, the typical non hispanic white household in this country has an, a, a net worth of about you know close to two hundred thousand dollars. The typical latino african American family has a typical net worth of around uh, five thousand dollars you know so huge gaps in the ability um, you know, to afford housing so on, on the one hand. Um, you know, an opportunity that comes out of this foreclosure crisis. So, you know, we're seeing, you know, values, um, you know, record property values at record lows around the country, prices at these record lows, um, interest rates at record lows. Um, you know, this, this could be an opportunity for households of color who are renters right now, so they don't have to sell a property to move into home ownership. And I've done some research in Southern California looking at what's happening to foreclosures uh, particularly in Latino communities in Southern California. And what I've found is a lot are being bought by investors, which is something we're, we're talking about. But the other group that's buying up these properties are Latino families, people with Spanish surnames in, in the region. So you wonder, you know, is this providing an opportunity you know, for some people who wouldn't ordinarily get into homeownership? So the other, and you could see how, again, prices being very low in more middle income neighborhoods, um, places where the typical home price was in the 300,000s, 500,000s in Phoenix at the height of the market. You could see a family, you know, that may have been a predominantly white community at that time, you may see a family um, of color being able to, to move in there for the first time. Um, On the other hand, though, with foreclosures being transformed to rentals, um, households of color are way more likely to be renters um, than to be owners. And so in some ways, it may be a good thing that we see some of these predominantly homeowner communities having rentals in them for the first time because it provides an opportunity for people who would never be able to be a homeowner to take advantage of the good school systems that come in these communities, Um, the the other amenities.
1: Right. So the flip side of that is that the studies that we've seen on this topic indicate that transitional rental neighborhoods have exactly the problems you were trying to avoid when you bought in the neighborhoods you bought into. Um, the schools are generally not, not as high quality. The police and fire costs are much higher, uh, and crime rates are higher. A uh, study we did in San Bernardino County the fire services were 41% higher for areas with high non-owner-occupied single-family. These are not apartments. Non-owner-occupied single-families, uh, renter. And uh, so fire was, 40, I think, 41, and, and police services were 46% higher. So they're more, they're, they're more expensive to maintain uh, than owner-occupied. They're not as stable. Your intuition is very good there. And um, so, uh, again, I come back to uh, owner-occupancy being a uh, being a key especially at the when we're at the low point in the market right now is not when you want four million people going from ownership to renters because when that happens and these home prices appreciate the uh, the equity appreciation of those homes will not stay in Phoenix it'll go wherever the money came from um, so I understand, I understand your point, but I think what, what argues against it is, is the, 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 the lost opportunity families to rebuild equity in single-family homes because they, they, four million of them have gone from, from owners to renters, and I think that will be a crime if it happens.
2: And I mean, when you talk about that, you know, I, I, I'm thinking, okay, on one hand, as Deirdre said, you have all these families, you know, moving into neighborhoods they probably would not have moved otherwise, but they're renting. And then on the flip side, home prices at the, at, at the bottom now or near bottom will begin to appreciate so the renters will forever stay as renters because they right. will be able it, to it afford costs, It costs
1: now. more to rent than it does to own. If you look at, I don't know about Arizona, but if you go out and look at renting a house in California, It's more expensive than the mortgage payment. That's because the return on investment being sought by the people that are buying the houses is 10 percent, and the mortgage rates are 4 Mm percent. So it's more expensive to rent. You'll never get out of that hole once you go there. Sixty-six percent of Latino wealth was destroyed in this housing downturn. Pew study recently. How are they going to get it back? And they save for generations sometimes to get into those houses and build that equity. How are they going to get it back if they turn back into renters? It's nice that housing is more affordable, and it's you know it's always good when things get less expensive. But you know what we're talking about is is rent that's more than rent that is more expensive than buying. So it's more expensive today than it is to rent. Everybody that's buying single family homes and renting them out has positive cash flow. That never used to be the case, right? So I think that's the problem. Is 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 the long-term economics of this is 4 or 5 million people that just lose the american dream that's that's my
3: perspective and i think a big part of that's the credit it's just it's much more difficult for uh, right. anyone probably to get a mortgage but especially borrowers who are going to not be able to put down as much of a down payment except for fha that's really the kind of the the lifeline right now i think
2: and, and we're talking about uh, homes, that, you know, are obviously homes where people live. But uh, many, especially Latino, and uh, families are also small business owners. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, a neighborhood is not just you know single family homes. A neighborhood is you know the, the shop around the corner, you know, the supermarket, all these different things. Um, and uh, so, how much of that when you're when when one is looking at the effect of this, this uh, foreclosure crisis, this housing crisis in the country, how much of that has taken a toll also in small business ownership? And, uh, and how much of it is connected, you know, how much the two stories are linked?
3: Well, I would say uh, housing is the entire business cycle. That, that's why we had the biggest recession since World War II. That's why we had the financial crisis. It was all housing and of course how that then played out through the financial system because of the the mortgage exposure. So you know we always think of housing as being a very important, certainly in terms of usually leading the economy into a recession, leading us back out of the recession, but this time was was the granddaddy of them all in terms of this housing cycle uh, completely dominated. And we're you know I think uh, we're probably in agreement, we're we're not through it yet. Uh, We haven't, we can't yet say that housing is going to be the strong leading sector. I mean, there are certainly some signs of some recovery, but that's uh, you know one of the main reasons, You know, both the, the, the lack of a housing recovery, and so home construction is very, very weak, and the fact that the legacy in the financial system itself is still being worked through. I mean, that's what, Graham, that's what you're working on, trying to, to right. get investors, the financial system, to get through this, work through these problems.
1: Right. Um, so, We spend a lot of time talking to homeowners who have $300,000 mortgages. Their homes were worth $400,000, and now they're worth $200,000. They don't go out to dinner as much. They don't maintain their home as well. They don't spend the money they'd spend going to the movies. So in terms of the effect on local businesses, it's dramatic. We haven't haven't determined the the multiplier effect, if you will, but um, it, it clearly has an effect. when. You know, folks spend money locally when they have when they have discretionary income. They spend it locally. If they don't have discretionary income, they can't, and that, that ripples throughout the economy. And you guys probably know more about that than I do.
4: Yeah, and if we if we take into account too that you know, you know, homeowners that are more likely to be underwater, um, you know, are people that were living in these more volatile markets, but also um, households of color are more likely to be underwater in their mortgages. And so, you know, you can think, I mean, bringing it back to this issue of race and ethnicity, um, you know, you can see very localized effects of that, too, you know, with the the businesses that are in their neighborhoods owned by people who may, you know, look like them, you know, not being, you know, used as much because these people don't have as many assets.
1: If you have a mortgage in Phoenix uh, or in Arizona, the odds are uh, that 50% 50, 50% of you are underwater. I don't know if you've seen those numbers or not, but um, that's a huge number. Um, and underwater homeowners are much more likely to default. And again, I, the cost of foreclosures aren't apparent. I'm going to come this back one more time. Uh, a HUD study tells us that a foreclosure costs the local government $19,277 on average, that's per HUD. So this isn't just, if you if you prevent a foreclosure, you help the people that aren't foreclosed on. Right? It costs the local government money as well. The effect on, 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 on the local business is, is fairly self-evident. And then it costs the homeowners surrounding that homeowner, the nine adjacent homeowners, this was the smallest number I could find, $14,200. Right? So that's $34,000 cost to the community. So if we are... Have a collective action that prevents foreclosures some part, some people their response may be well why did should he get the benefit of that and the answer to me is we 're all getting the benefit of it because you just saved thirty four thousand dollars in the community so I think what 's required here is collective action on the part of the community. the community is desperate is, is being damaged they have the deepest interest in this and so that's I don't I don't know so, where it's going with that. So, but how, what of, is
2: this collective action? I mean, what is it? We're talking about something like like it, you know it's something we should know, but I'm not quite sure what it is what is it that we can do? Well,
3: there was in 2008 legislation passed called the Troubled Asset Relief Program mm-hmm. TARP, and that was primarily that became known as the bank bailout. The largest part of it was addressing the financial system, but there was also a 50 billion dollar piece that was directed to homeowners. It was supposed to do something like what the original intention of uh, the bank part was to to push the process through, get resolution, and uh, of that 50 billion, less than 5 billion has ever been spent. And I think one of the important things though to remember is that when the discussion, this, this began in the Bush administration, carried over into the Obama administration, when the discussion became serious about doing a, you know, a homeowner bailout, I think, Graham, you, you hit it on the head. It became politically radioactive. And in fact, the beginnings of the Tea Party were railing against, I don't want my neighbor, my deadbeat neighbor, to get my tax money. And so that original intention that there would be, and even $50 billion was not going to be anywhere close enough uh, to, to deal with the whole problem, but it ran aground because of these issues of fairness. So, I mean, in a sense, the collective action—you uh, know—if you're looking for someone to blame, we have to blame ourselves. We could not agree how we, we would address this collectively.
4: But on a on more local level, like in the Phoenix region, you know, we have seen collective action um, early on. Um, you know, right after foreclosures started picking up, um, LISC got the local initiative support. Um, Corporation got together with a bunch of nonprofits, um, started to coordinate housing counseling. We saw the Arizona Foreclosure Prevention Task Force come about. That was 2008. Um, you know, so nonprofits and, um, you know, other housing market actors getting together, figuring out how do we coordinate, housing, you know, homeowner counseling. You know, so that's an example of, of collective action happening on a citywide level, on a more neighborhood level. I don't know if I've seen anything. You know, like, like, Graham, you were kind of... You, well,
1: well, there, so yeah, I'm not going to I'm not going to sit here and promote our program. I mean, we 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 work with communities and we advise them uh, when they hire us how uh, how to how to act locally and what, what they can do. Uh, I think the important the important point is that the exist there are 15 federal programs that have been introduced since that I can count since the uh, since since 2008. 15 federal programs. Um, there are, um, there, there are and they, those programs help people who have bank loans and they have Fannie or Freddie loans, and they've been somewhat effective. Um, but I think the, uh, I think the, 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 the key issue to keep in mind is that when a, a lot of where these monies go is to reduce interest rates on loans. So if you have a six percent mortgage, and you apply for a, a modification, maybe you can get the, the mortgage down to 2%. But you still have a $300,000 balance, and you still have a $200,000 house. So local action needs to address the core driver of foreclosures. It's not affordability. It's not lying on a mortgage application. It's not, well, the bank made the loan, and you know who, who was to blame here? The key issue is the housing market collapsed. Now you've got $300,000 mortgages on $200,000 houses. You have to get the principal down below $200,000. Now in California, TARP money, $1.7 billion of TARP money went to CalHFA, the Housing Finance Agency in California. They have a program. If you're a lender, if you own a mortgage, if you own a mortgage, they will pay you $100,000 if you own a mortgage if you reduce the principal on the mortgage by $100,000, they'll write you that check if the homeowner is distressed. So think about that. Bank owns a mortgage, but they've only been able to put out $500 million of $1.7 billion, and there are a lot of underwater mortgages in California. So part of it is the mechanisms and the incentives aren't 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 effective, um, and. The, but uh, you all should think about focusing on principal reduction if you want to prevent foreclosures. Otherwise, the modifications just don't work. If anybody here has got a modified mortgage, I'm sure they felt great for about three months when their mortgage payments went down, and then they realized they were going to be underwater for the next eight years, which is, which is a horrible feeling.
3: Yeah. So. I agree with both of you. Ginger. I think those, those kinds of programs are absolutely essential. And Graham, you're right. Principal reduction is is the only way to get through this, but I guess I would point out that we, we have not agreed on who 's going to pay for it. Uh, calculations that I did uh, not too long ago suggest that something like three trillion dollars is what we would need to take the LTVs back to where they were before the, the crisis, and nobody 's going to write a check for three trillion dollars. Right.
2: Right. I mean it's it's clearly uh you know, especially because everybody's hurting, right? And we start thinking, where is that three trillion dollars gonna I can't even say it's so much money. You know, it's gonna come from, from, from our pockets, right? And uh and it's it's very hard to think of giving away anything, especially when it's not really benefiting you, although given everything that you're saying, it it does benefit. We we would everybody. all be better
3: off if we could agree how to do this. That yeah. was my point. That that. Uh, you know, we, we bit the bullet, and everybody hates it. It stinks that we bailed out the banks, but we did it. And now our financial system is stable. And it, it would stink to have a, a bailout of uh, some people who probably don't deserve it to be bailed out, but uh, we would all be better off if
1: we could figure out how to do it. So what if somebody owned a lot of mortgages, and they had them on their books for $32 billion, Right, these private label mortgages that I was talking about. They had them on their books for $32 billion. That's with a face amount. right? So think about that $300,000 mortgage times $100,000. Can't do the math, but a lot. Right? <laughs> so they have them on their books for $32 billion. But then they have a thing called fair market value on their books. And the fair market value on their books is $21 billion. So what's going on there? Is that part of that $3 trillion? And the answer is, yeah, it is. Mm -hmm. Fannie Mae has $32 billion face of private label securitization loans on their books with a fair market value as of the third quarter of last year of $21 billion. They've taken the loss. The economics are there. The value of the house went down. The value of the bonds went down. So a lot of these losses have been taken. right? And if you went to family, say you're a homeowner, you say, "Hey, listen, I'm a smart guy. I got a $300,000 mortgage. I a $200,000 house. I'll pay you $160,000 for, for my mortgage because I think that's what it's worth. I did the math. That's what you show it on your books for." They would have to say, "No, we're not allowed to sell it." Well, how about 5,000 of my neighbors come down and, and, and come to your, your we'll go to bank you know, we'll go to your bank and uh, the trustee and we'll see the trustee and 5,000 of them we'll march. They'll say, so no, we still can't do it. Tax laws prohibit it. Well, how about if my local mayor and my city council vote to buy that mortgage? Could you sell that mortgage to me for $160,000? Because you've got it written down to $160,000. We're not arguing about price. Would you sell it if you could? Well, I suppose I might. And that's the kind of collective action that city governments can take. They can approach bondholders. And they can ask to buy those mortgages. And in Fannie Mae, for example, that 32 billion is written down to 20 billion, and a lot of those mortgages are worth less than the value of the homes. So if the mortgage is worth less than the homes, you no, know, that's great. Then you can refinance the mortgage and and nobody loses any money. So the losses have been taken. When home values collapsed, the losses got taken. So it's not all of that three trillion dollars. Good point, And there'd be a lot of arguments about what these loans are really worth, right? And do those people deserve it? And how is, how is going to finance this? And who's at risk? And all those questions. But those are the kinds of questions we ought to ask ourselves. These loans have been written down already. They're worth less than the houses. And whenever that's the case, there's a solution. Because you're avoiding the cost of foreclosure. So those are the types of things, creative solutions, we need to think about, I believe.
2: So, you know, it's interesting because um, periodically, uh, uh, as a reporter, you get, you know, reports from different analysts, callers, uh, banks, talking about the recovery of the housing market. Um, you know, and we have all these numbers, less foreclosed homes in the market, less uh, uh, investors, so forth. I mean, a, a collection of numbers that seem to indicate That things are getting better, but hearing you all talk, it's you know there should be a lot of asterisks next to all of those statements, you know, with tiny type at the bottom that we should read. So, so, how exactly should the average person, the folks who are here, me, interpret all these numbers that are coming out, and how should we look at the housing market as it stands right now? I guess.
3: The ideal, as I said, is that we would go back to the housing market being very, very boring.
2: (laughs) So when I don't want to write about it anymore, that's
3: when... When, That's when you know (laughs) that the market is healed, Mm -hmm. when it's boring. Where the house prices just go up about at the level of income growth, Mm
1: -hmm.
3: about as many homes are built as new people need to buy them. It's pretty easy to buy a house, pretty easy to sell a house. You don't make that much, you don't lose much.
2: Mm -hmm. So I should be worried then that the You latest should be worried
3: season, if you start Phoenix to see double like, digit price increases again. Okay. Yeah. And
2: lots of new construction mm-hmm. too much of it. Cuz that's what's mm-hmm. happening We're here, We're starting right? to see that now. Yeah. Right, yeah, right. The already. Yeah, and the some, the same areas that where the foreclosure crisis yeah. hit very They're much. going
4: right back. Right. And I, I mean, you know, this brings up another issue. Are we just going to repeat this Process all over, over again? Are we just going to be building in the same way? You know, building out on the urban fringe in the same way, putting out these neighborhoods? You know, from scratch, where everyone buys into the neighborhood at the same time, everyone takes out a loan at the same time, all the houses are similar, everyone's taking out similar loans? Um, or are we going to think about diversifying too? The way that. The, the way that we you know, build housing invest in housing. Um, so yeah, there was an article, many of you probably read it, in the Arizona Republic just, what, yesterday, um, about how we're starting all over again, you know. And it was a great It was great news. Yeah, it was great news, you know. <laughs> Things are looking up, but then you look at those same places, and gosh, I just saw, I remember seeing that picture four years ago as a poster child for the foreclosure crisis, you know, similar looking kind of area. Mm-hmm. So, you know, where, where do we go from here? We have to think bigger too, not just in terms of what we've been doing, but what can we do differently?
3: I think that's a great point, Deirdre, that, which echoes something that you said early on, Fernanda, and that's the need for neighborhoods to be diverse. Mm-hmm. When you had, uh, as you said it exactly right, the people with the same, you know, maybe even the same parts in their life cycles, mm-hmm. similar yeah. incomes, similar houses, similar loans, maybe same occupation, mm-hmm. occupational mix, ethnic, racial mix, and then when things turn the wrong way, then it just destroys the community. Mm-hmm.
2: One last because we're running out of time, and we're going to open up for questions. But uh, Graham, specifically, when you're talking about approaching, you know, city leaders, mayors, city councils to have them move and buy those 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 loans, um, you have, I'm sure, on the other hand, the pressure from uh, developers that are coming to them and saying, "We're we're buying this, you know, we're turning transforming this empty lot into some beautiful." community and so forth. How do you navigate that? Because on one hand, you're telling the city, you know, the message is don't, don't buy. I mean, don't, if it's too good to be true, it is too good to be true. On the other hand, cities also need, you know, jobs and, and, and tax base and all that.
1: Well, okay, so foreclosures are the enemies of builders, right? If you understand what builders do, they build new houses. And if you're going to build a new house, it's got to be cheaper than the foreclosure mm-hmm. or you can't build it. And that's why construction employment in Phoenix collapsed. So the same thing happened in Southern California. So preventing foreclosures is what builders love to see. If you can stop foreclosures, keep people in their houses, right? then they can build new homes because the, the supply dries up. right? So the supply of new housing, available housing, becomes less, and, and prices will improve. So foreclosures are bad for... Um, for home builders and preventing foreclosures is good for home builders and, and everyone else for that matter. So.
2: Well, uh, should we open up for questions?
4: Yeah, we're going to open it up to all of you for questions. There are two of us going around with microphones. Jennifer's on that side, I'm on this side. Um, raise your hand and we'll pick you guys out, so just wait for us. We're going to try to get everyone's questions in. Please say your first and last name for your question. This is being recorded. It's going to be up on our website by tomorrow morning. You can share with all your friends and family who couldn't be here tonight. Um, Jennifer's got the first question over there.
5: Hi, I'm Val Iverson. And I was wondering if we could talk a little bit more about renters. Um, there was kind of this implied talk about how renters are bad. Renters are bad neighbors. Renters cause I'm a crime. renter. I'm a good neighbor.
4: <laughs> I'm
5: a <renter> as well. <laughs> I cause crime. Um, so I think if we can all talk in a language more about housing stability having stable homes rather than whether you're a homeowner or a renter, I think that would be better for all of us talking about this foreclosure crisis. And so following that a little further, uh, just a quick story, and then I'll ask a question. Um, The house that's catty-corner for me is owned by an investor. There's been three um, families in there during this whole recession, but not because of the tenants. They all want to stay there. They love the neighborhood. They take care of the homes, they love the schools, they don't want to move their kids, but the investor keeps raising the rent and they have to move. So what can we do to protect tenants in all this foreclosure crisis?
1: Well, I'll deal with the first point and then maybe, Deirdre, you can... So I should make the point very clearly that the problem is transitional neighborhoods, not renters. It just happens that renters and transitional neighborhoods go together, not always. Listen, I didn't own a house until I was, you know, 24 years old. I never lived in a house. I rented my whole, you know, my parents rented forever. But, so, there's nothing wrong with being a renter, but transitional neighborhoods are expensive for police and fire. It's just the truth. Now, in terms of what we can do for renters, I'm going to hand that off to you.
4: Sure. I mean, well, and building off of you as well, so I'm doing research right now. Um, you know, on foreclosures and crime, and um, we're looking right now just at Chandler as this pilot study, and so we're seeing the effect that, you know, um, you know, foreclosures, the selling of foreclosures is having on crime, and it's really interesting, but what we're finding in Chandler is that, um, you know, it's the selling of foreclosures that's, that's associated with crime in Chandler. It's not the selling of foreclosures to investors, actually. And I was really expecting, you know, it's, we're going to see a big effect um, when we draw in who's, you know, uh, when we draw in o- on owner occupancy, you know, into the research. But actually, investors weren't having any effect. You know, whether it was bought by an investor or not wasn't having an effect. It was just that the property was being bought, being turned, turned over and over and over. That's one side of it. The second is, um, so, you know, the federal government's very interested in, um, you know, turning foreclosures over to investors, you know, expanding rentals, which could help uh, families foreclosing and so forth. Um, And so they have this this program that they started to do this. And I don't know all the details of the program, but something to think about when we think about, you know, giving incentives to investors is, well, what about housing affordability? Um, You know, if we're going to be giving... um, you know, some kind of financial incentives to, for investors to buy these properties. What about at- attaching some affordability restrictions to the rents that they're going to be charging to the people living in them? And that's a particularly important given that who is moving into these, work, who is becoming renters right now, families who are foreclosing, those who are most vulnerable, um, you know, in the housing market.
3: I'd say not just affordability, but also security. I mean, mm-hmm. there are, in other countries, not all, but some, it's uh, more common to have long-term leases. Mm-hmm. And there's no reason why we couldn't have. I mean, I think, uh, you know, we, we talk about maybe bad renters, or maybe they are bad landlords mm-hmm. too who won't, won't, aren't willing to talk about uh, locking in a, a particular, and it may have an escalation clause in it, but at least something that's predictable. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's, that's part of the, the maybe the culture is that we just, you know, expect these uh, to be year-to-year leases, uh, you know, no, no predictability on what that, uh, the terms might be. It doesn't have to be that way
5: question over here on your right. Hi. I'm Penelope Johnson. Um, My question is um, directed at whether or not you've considered the impact of homeowners associations and assessment fees in terms of affordability, turnover, and in the case of my neighborhood, it's been a particular problem with foreclosures and the long uh, time that it took to get things moving and turned over with the banks, um, which meant not only that the homes were sitting there vacant, but also the assessments were not being paid to and the extent. And in the case of my neighborhood of single family homes, um, the receivables on a $1.8 million budget ran about $300,000.
1: Right. So, when a, when a lender makes a loan on a, on a PUD or a condo, um, they look at the Homeowners Association budget, right? and they have to make some assumptions about vacancies, and um, because you're going to be collecting from some percentage of the units. And sometimes they don't release funds or do loans until they, there's a certain a significant number of sales. And before their sales take place, the builder is responsible for the balance of the payments. So, um, and they get it wrong. And, and when they get it wrong, homeowners suffer. Um, so again, this, and that's got, this happens in volatile markets. Um, happens in, happened in Florida a lot in the 80s and 90s with lots of condos and, and homeowners associations failing left and right. So, um, yeah, I'm not sure how to solve that problem, uh, except we need smarter lenders, maybe. Hopefully we learn from this and, and people yeah, I don't know if the
3: agreements can be written differently in advance or at least be more wary of, of the kinds of problems that can arise.
6: Question over here to your left. Hi, I'm Christina Plant. I'm a layperson, uh, but I do a lot of community organizing in my neighborhood and a lot of blight reporting. And my question has to do a little bit about that delay that takes place. Because the property owners that, and I, and I don't know the lingo, and the, I know there's a lot of legalese, to foreclosure, but what I experience is that property owners are foreclosed or believe themselves to be foreclosed, abandon a property, both residential and commercial. The bank doesn't take ownership. Me and my neighbors are reporting it to the city for code enforcement. The city can't figure out who owns the property. It takes forever to give due process notice. The property never gets uh, gets rectified before, literally, it gets taken over by criminal transients who set it on fire. And in some cases, these are properties that have neighborhood preservation dollars invested into them to rehab them in the first place. So my question is, what suggestions do you have for us that can help expedite that, or is that just the curse of reality?
3: I I think you have to uh, learn, and you probably have, learn about you know, how mortgage servicers work, and and try to navigate that. And I think, I don't know, maybe we would, would agree that mortgage servicing as a business failed during this crisis, and just like homeowners associations need to learn from this, uh, we are in the process. We're unfortunately not very far down the road in reforming mortgage servicing. Uh, for example, we don't know yet what's going to happen with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, uh, and uh, there have been some changes in the servicing business, but what you're describing is, is just, you know, that business model just doesn't work.
1: Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think there has to be, again, a community partnership, community organization, whether it's the city council or the mayor or somebody that deals effectively with servicers, especially in a community the size of Phoenix. You guys are enormous, right? So, you, you have I think if applied properly, and the political will to apply it—two right, different things—you um, have the ability to deal directly with servicers. I, we, we consult a very small, uh, very small community in Southern California, and uh, they have a guy who's responsible for code enforcement, and he doesn't let them sell any foreclosed properties until they're all brought up to code. Um, and so, and, and, and he works. You know, he works with guys like B of A and Wells and Chase and all the servicers and is the voice for the community in trying to fix this problem. So uh, it's a matter of political will and um, you know, it's not ability, but again, the community should have a voice in this because the community is being affected deeply by these foreclosures. Um, when there's a foreclosure, uh, again, going back to Fannie Mae numbers, they say, well, Three hundred thousand dollar loan. How much do we get out of that loan when it's when it's foreclosed? Right is a hundred thousand dollars. So uh, that's that's what Fannie Mae forecasts, and it's, so it's a servicing problem. The investors are hurt as well. Uh, so if, I think effective community action, working directly with servicers, they'll listen to you if if, if your mayor picks up the phone, they'll listen to them.
4: I mean, your question, though, also brings up this problem, this widespread problem of lack of data, you know, on who, you know, who the services are for the, well, first of all, what are the properties, you know, who are the services that are attached to them, you know, who, who owns the property at the end of the day? This is a widespread issue in the foreclosure crisis, um, you know, and we need to think about, you know, in terms of next ones that will come about, you know, how, how do we have a better data management system about these issues, so community organizations like you, you know, could take advantage of that and take take these issues into your own hands. And yeah, and the other issue, though, that your question brings up is partnerships with, you know, not just um, you know, lo- local government, uh, planning department, neighborhood services, housing, but also police agencies too. And to getting all these people together in the same room to discuss these issues and to triage, you know. So while you're in the process of figuring out who owns, you know, who owns this home, you know, how do we, you know? Uh, you know, put sanctions on them so that they start maintaining it, and you know, we deal with this problem of, you know, crime coming about because of, the, because of these vacancies.
3: The Dodd-Frank Act has a provision to do exactly what you're talking about, okay. is, is to create a public you know, loan-level data, database that can hopefully sort out those, those information
0: questions.
4: Very hopeful. Question over here on your right.
0: Uh, yes, my name's Bill Zafer. I lost my house. I let it go. I saw financially it was not worth keeping. But I was wondering. I always look for solutions under the circumstances. I would prefer. I think all of us have a neighborhood where they own the homes. Has there been any discussion about a more um, a pilot project where there's a moratorium on investors buying and using as rentals? But it ha- you allow the people that were foreclosed, as long as their credit was not. if it was ruined by the fact that they lost their home and they pay their bills on everything else and their debt ratio allows them to afford that home and they can go into these neighborhoods, could we possibly do that as a pilot project and take the data and information and and if it's successful, then duplicate it?
1: Right. So keeping people... The central message is keep people in their homes, right? So think about this dance that's going on, right? People get foreclosed. You probably rented a house somewhere. Maybe that was a foreclosure. Why not just stay in your own home, right? So the, the, that's, that's a part of our program, and we think it's, it's really important that people that are, in circumstances such as you describe able to have the option to rent their house. That ought to be the first option the lender ought to look at. Mm-hmm. Is look, I don't. You didn't want to move. You would have rented that house, right? You didn't want it. It could cost you ten thousand dollars to pack up and move all your stuff and move somewhere else and dislocate your family. So, again, uh, these types of ideas um, are 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 coming forward, and um, you know we we're putting them forward in other hours as well. But that's. That's a, a particularly important program, we think, is keeping, uh, keeping homeowners in
0: their homes. I understand what you're saying, but my point is, there's how many people lost their homes? Maybe 7, 10 million people now can't buy a home because their credit's been ruined. Not, why not allow them uh, forgiveness, okay, and say, as long as you've been paying your bills and you have a steady job, you now can qualify to get into this type of program. That's where I'm coming from. A rental, not, pro- rental program. No, not a rental. Well, if you've lost your home and you're renting now, you've had your home foreclosed, allow them now to be able to afford to buy a home as long as they paid their bills right. and so, they but, qualify.
1: Well, here's, here's a simple question. How many people in the room would default on their mortgage if it wasn't reported on their credit report? Now, you don't have to raise your hands, <laughs> but I, I expect a lot of people would. And that's, I think that's the essence of the, the problem there is if it's not reported, you get, you get a whole wave of foreclosures.
6: Next question on your left.
5: Hello. My name is Derek Partridge. Um, I noticed before you talked about preventing uh, foreclosures as a great measure
3: to help kind of uh, stabilize the market. Um, however, how do you, what do you feel about incentivizing home ownership? Um, do you think that that's a good thing or a bad thing?
1: If that, if that was directed at me, um, at any of whoever has the expertise or... You want to take that one?
3: As an economist, that's an easy one. We should not incentivize anything, renter or homeowner. We should, we should if we think that housing is important, and I do, then we should make the appropriate housing affordable for that family or individual. But it, it makes very little sense from an economic standpoint. To try to to skew uh, from an overall efficiency standpoint. Now there are certain parts of our economy who benefit a great deal from having a skew toward home ownership, but it doesn't make much sense from an overall perspective.
2: Essentially, what you're saying is that if you can afford to buy, if it's within your means, that's the
3: solution for you. It's great, but it it should be a level playing field. Right. We shouldn't discriminate against renters.
4: Well, and also the big incentives that we have, you know, the mortgage interest tax deduction, capital gains. Um, you know, taxes and so forth, I mean, a lot of research shows, you know, who's benefiting them. It's primarily, you know, upper-middle, upper-income households. It's not really lower-middle, lower-income homeowners that are benefiting from these programs at the end of the day that are reaping the greatest rewards. And so there's a lot of debate about, well, you know, can we get rid of the mortgage interest tax deduction then, you know, um, if it's primarily benefiting, you know, these upper-income households. The other side of it, though, is it's really interesting in the classes I've been teaching at Arizona State, um, you know, I've noticed a lot of the students, they're very wary about homeownership and becoming, you know, homeowners, and, 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 you know, they, they think of themselves more, you know, maybe as renters for the long term. And some of it may be just an age thing, you know, in your early 20s, you know, not a good time to be a homeowner, low income being a student so forth. But, you know, I keep wondering if, if we're in the middle of a sea change, if maybe, um, you know, we're not going to be a society where you know, being a homeowner is that stage in the life cycle that you must meet in order to fully become an adult or not, or whether we're going to be a society that's more accepting of renters in the future after this crisis. Because of people who've, who are in my generation and, and somewhat younger, our, what our experience has been like. Seeing how, how, how devastating going through foreclosure can be for somebody and how it makes you vulnerable. We've got time for one last question over here. I want to thank our panelists for being here, uh, enlightening us with such amazing discussion, and all of you for showing up um, and joining our conversation. I want to remind you that my birthday party, I mean the reception, (laughs) is going to be held um, just in the back left door, just right through there. So please join us for wine, beer, soft drinks, and more discussion with our panelists who will all be there. Now our last question. Okay.
6: Thank you again. My name is Christine Luna. I am the designated broker owner of Real Logic Realty. And I see myself, again, as a small business owner, a neighbor, a foot soldier, kind of the first line of defense that people come to to be able to help them with their questions. What are some proactive things that not only myself and my company, but my colleagues can do to get out there and start helping, again like the name of the, the program tonight, rebuild after foreclosure? What can we do as proactive steps to get out there in the community and help our neighbors?
3: I would suggest one thing is a more open discussion. I think we need, I applaud people who are willing to stand up and tell us their stories. You know, I think both Graham and Deirdre had made this point. That, you know, this It's like a national catastrophe that has hit us, and we can argue all night about whose fault it was, but we need to recognize that it was a catastrophe and not, not have the stigma associated with some people whose experience was worse than others, and I think that would be a very positive, and I hope that this is part of that process, is getting people willing to open up and talk about what their experience has been, and learn from each other.
1: Yeah, I, I would say I would say realtors. Uh, there, there's a there's a real need for homeowner education
6: mm-hmm.
1: um, when it comes to mortgage finance. People just don't get it, uh, especially first time homebuyers. Um, and so I think that's a natural role for realtors to play. Realtors understand mortgages. They under, obviously understand real estate. So homeowner education. Um, you know, I, I'd say the more you can educate homeowners about what it means to make a monthly mortgage payment and what the risks are, what the upsides are, what the downsides are, it would be great for everyone.
4: And to be, you know, a, source, a referral source, too, you know, to have a lot of resources, you know, at, um, at your fingertips that you, you know, could give to people who need them, you know, about homeownership counseling and education and, and, and other things, too. Thank you so much, we'll see you at the reception.